Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst. Thank you so much for listening this morning. Well, last week I told you that we'd get into the topic of pseudogenes. I'll explain what those are and what they mean in a minute. But today I'm going to go into the broader topic that that topic lies within, and that is the topic of transitionary evidence for evolution. Now, this is a bigger problem for the evolutionist than for the Christian, no matter how the debate pans out. See, the evolutionist needs transitionary evidence. Evolution has been called the only game in town for naturalism. If there isn't a mechanism, and there's not, and if there isn't evidence that it has occurred, and there's not, then the evolutionist, the atheist, the naturalist, is left with nothing. They're left empty-handed. On the flip side of the coin, even if you could prove a transition from early ancestor to modern species, or even if you could prove common descent, that would not negate the Bible at all. In fact, there are Christians that have seemed to adopt this perspective. Francis Collins is one of those. Michael Behe, the author of Darwin's Black Box and The Edge of Evolution, an intelligent design proponent, has as well. I think that's bad science and bad theology, but suffice it to say, this is something that is critical for the atheist and not so critical for the theist or the Christian. So they have to have this. And as you'll see as you listen today, I don't think they can have this. In fact, I think that they are grasping at straws yet again when it comes to this issue. And I think the evidence best fits with the Christian worldview and the biblical perspective. So as we talk about the transitionary evidence, let's begin talking about the fossil record, because that is the most observable aspect of the transitionary evidence. Now, I want to preface what I'm going to say by saying that I am not a paleoanthropologist, I'm not a geologist, I'm not a biologist, so this is a field that I don't feel extremely comfortable in. My degree in college was in chemistry, and this is a little bit outside the spectrum of chemistry. We're going to briefly discuss something that's a little related to chemistry here in a minute, but after that, I feel like I am not an expert in this issue. So bear with me. This is what I've learned. If you would like to contribute, feel free to go to godsolutionshow.com, leave your comments and questions, and I'll deal with them on the show. So back to the transitionary evidence and the fossil record. The bottom line is that the fossil record stands in stark opposition to the theory of evolution. We'll describe why in a minute. Darwin acknowledged this problem in The Origin of Species in Chapter 10, writing, Why then is not every geological formation and every stratum full of such intermediate links? Geology assuredly does not reveal any such finely graduated organic chain, and this perhaps is the most obvious and serious objection which can be urged against my theory. He stated it, not I, he stated that if the fossil evidence is lacking, his theory falls apart. That fossil evidence is lacking today like it was in his time, and we're going to see that as we go on during the show. Now, because of the lack of evidence, the evolutionist has to use peculiar methods to try and achieve desired results. Radiometric dating of rocks is scientifically valid if the starting assumptions 
For example, the isotope ratios and whether or not they've been constant throughout time and throughout history, if those assumptions are correct, then radiometric dating is correct as well. Unfortunately for the evolutionist, those assumptions are nothing more than assumptions. And I'm sure you've heard the old adage about assumptions. They get no better than that here. There's no way that we could go back supposed hundreds of millions of years to know what the atmospheric isotopic ratios were at those times to compare them with those that we see today and to make a measurement based on that comparison. That is what would be needed for this to be a reliable dating method. In other words, we can't trust radiometric dating at all. We can't trust it, especially over those hundreds of millions of supposed years. There's no way that you could show that it's the case. Now, those assumptions cannot be proven, and neither can the theory. Even if those assumptions were valid, and there's no way to trust that, radiometric dating of organic materials by C14, C12 would only be valid to 50,000 years or 10 half-lives. Not very much time. Other methods for rock and dating rock would be valid further back, but none of these would work for fossils because fossils are found in sedimentary rock and there is no dating method for sedimentary rock. So the evolutionist has to come up with another idea. Here is where they use a process called bracketing, dating igneous rock in the vicinity of the fossils and then trying to date sedimentary rock in relation to that. Now that's sketchy at best, because you're not even dating the actual fossils that you're giving a date to, but just other rock in the general area. Even today, we see all sorts of geological strata of various ages in relative proximity to each other. And so it'd be crazy to deduce an age for one based on the other. Finally, on top of all those unproved assumptions and invalid bracketing techniques, scientists employ circular reasoning using indicator fossils by dating the fossils in the rock layer based on other fossils that happen to be there. So they date the fossils in the rock by the age of the supposed layer, and they date the layer by the age of the supposed fossils. It becomes circular at best. All this to say, the method for dating the supposed fossils that we find is very, very weak. You could say that evolutionary dating is about as reliable as speed dating. It's kind of a joke, but it's unreliable to say the least. Going from there, we have big problems with the so-called transitions of evolution in the fossil record. One of the biggest problems is the Cambrian explosion. Life during the first supposed 4 billion years of Earth's history included little more than single-celled organisms like bacteria. Supposedly, about 500 million years ago, there was an explosion of life where nearly every form of complex life that we know came into existence almost instantly. It's called the Cambrian Explosion. Since then, biodiversity has only decreased as no new phyla or major types of living organisms have come into existence. This phenomenon completely negates the typical view of evolution. Stephen Jay Gould and Niles Eldridge developed the theory of evolution called punctuated equilibrium in response to this phenomenon. And that theory is still hotly contested and lacks a plausible mechanism. All that to say, the fossil record cannot be dated accurately or reliably, 
and the fossil record does not show the transitions that it would need to show for evolution to be the case. Now I want to kind of hone in specifically on supposed human evolution. Many supposed ape men have been shown to be complete fabrications and hoaxes created with the intent of supporting the theory of evolution. Nebraska man is a famous example. It was formed from one tooth and a couple bone fragments from a pig. Now it's known to be fake. There are examples of fully ape now extinct. Those would include Ramapithecus, an extinct ape. The entire creature was formed from a couple teeth and a few bone shards. There has since been one intact jawbone found, and it is fully ape. Astralopithecus is also most likely just an extinct ape. It's a fully ape skull assumed to be prehuman because tools were found in the general area, and some evolutionists, including Richard Leakey, have totally renounced this one. They realize that this is not a transition to human beings. Several Australopithecine species, for example, Lucy, which is an Australopithecus afarensis, originally was thought to walk upright because of a fossilized knee that was found two kilometers away and multiple strata above Lucy. This is more art than science. It's mixing and matching bones and seeing what comes out. This is not legitimate science at all. That bone had no locking mechanism, and because of that, they thought this organism could walk upright. Since then, joints have been found with the locking mechanisms disproving that theory. The Lucy child discovered recently has shown this species to be ape, as expected by creationists, not according to the theory of evolution. There's very little fossil evidence for any of these so-called transitionary species. It's lacking across the board. In fact, as far as I know, the Lucy child is the most intact skeleton of any of these so-called transitionary organisms. Astralopithecines are not intermediates between ape and man, and this is something that has even been stated by Dr. Charles E. Oxnard in Fossils, Teeth, and Sex, New Perspective on Human Evolution, University of Washington Press, 1987. Okay, we have fully human so-called transitionary organisms. These obviously would include Cro-Magnon man and Neanderthal, which I think would fall within the Homo sapien species. Cro-Magnon man is anatomically identical to modern humans, and that's actually stated in Columbia Encyclopedia 6th edition. Similarly, Neanderthals had larger brains than most people today and assumed to be pre-human only because they had bad posture and different traits like that. We now know that Neanderthals interbred with modern humans, and that is genetic evidence that they were the same species because a species, by definition, is something that breeds with other members of that group. And so knowing that Neanderthals bred with modern humans indicates that they were humans as well. That brings us to what would be proposed to be the transitional fossils, the supposed missing links. And those don't hold up either. One of those would be Homo erectus, which is almost identical to current human anatomy. It's only a bit stouter and somewhat smaller brain. It was originally fashioned from pecking man and java man, again, throwing things together, the pecking man was a skull constructed from three teeth and a few other bones found in different areas of the same region. And Java man was fabricated from a skull shard, a human leg bone, and two teeth found 50 feet apart over several years. 
Now, current research near the Solo River in Java dates many Homo erectus fossils concurrent with humans. You'd also have Homo habilis as a proposed missing link, so to say. And this was found by Richard Leakey in 1972. Remember Richard Leakey? I'm sure you've heard the name. We're going to close with a quote of his in a minute. It's supposed to be 2.8 million years old, but was a fully human skull, thus predating many of the supposed pre-human skulls. Leakey's quote in June 1973 in National Geographic goes this way. Either we toss out the 1470 skull or we toss out all our theories of early man. It simply fits no previous models of human beginnings. 1470 leaves in rune the notion that all fossils can be arranged in an orderly sequence of evolutionary changes. Some dub the skull Homo rudolfensis, but many keep it in the habilis species. And KNMER, the fossil that Leakey just described, is the largest, best preserved habilis skull, but it's still debated and could be either a human or an ape skull. Again, current research also indicates erectus and habilis were concurrent with each other. So as we look at all these different findings, we realize there's nothing that actually came between apes and humans. This supposed missing link, these fossils that would prove common descent do not exist. No matter what your textbook says, the fossils don't exist. So let's look at a few different quotes from a few different people that would know. Henry G., writing in Nature back in 2001, said, Fossil evidence of human evolutionary history is fragmentary and open to various interpretations. Fossil evidence of chimpanzee evolution is absent altogether. So here in a peer-reviewed journal article, we see a scientist in this field stating the so-called fossil evidence for the common descent of humans from apes is non-existent. And whatever small amount of evidence does exist could be interpreted in many different ways. It's not quite the clear picture that the atheist or evolutionist would want to leave you with. The ambiguity, the question mark, the realization that the fossil record really doesn't tell them quite what they hoped it would about evolution. And of course, remember Darwin's own quote that the fossil record can disprove his entire theory. Stephen Jay Gould wrote back in 1977, and he is one of the foremost evolutionists since Darwin. He is deceased now. But he wrote, All paleontologists know that the fossil record contains precious little in the way of intermediate forms. Transitions between major groups are characteristically abrupt. I'm not saying that he was not an evolutionist. He definitely was an evolutionist. But he was willing to admit the lack of transitionary evidence. And that's what led him to come up with an unfalsifiable theory, the idea or the theory of punctuated equilibrium, where he stated that evolution happened literally so quickly that it was not preserved in the fossil record. Dr. Stephen Stanley, an evolutionist, writes, The known fossil record fails to document a single example of phyletic evolution accomplishing a major morphologic transition, and hence offers no evidence that a gradualistic model can be valid. Now, finally, the clincher. Richard Leakey, I discussed how he found KNMER 1470 and many others, probably one of the most famous paleoanthropologists of all time, and also one of the most famous evolutionists of all time. 
admitted in a 1990 PBS interview, if pressed about man's ancestry, I would have to unequivocally say that all we have is a huge question mark. To date, there has been nothing found to truthfully purport as a transitional species to man, including Lucy, since 1470 was as old and probably older. If further pressed, I would have to state that there is more evidence to suggest an abrupt arrival of man rather than a gradual process of evolution. Are you kidding me? One of the greatest evolutionists of all time saying, the evidence is better for the abrupt arrival of man than for an evolution from ape to human. Not something that the evolutionist, the naturalist, the atheist wants you to hear, but something that the greatest expert in this field was willing to say. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution on KDUR, 91.9 and 93.9 FM and KDUR.org online. Thanks so much for listening. Well, we've been talking about the lack of transitionary evidence in the fossil record and the lack of transitionary evidence across the board. Obviously, the fossil record is the first place that you'd look. But now, because of the lack of evidence in the fossil record, scientists are turning to the genetic field to see what the genetic evidence would be. This is where the issue of pseudogenes comes in. I am not an expert in this again, but I'm going to try and do my best to describe it. If you go to the godsolutionshow.com and look up this mp3, you'll find attached notes for this morning's talk. In those notes, you'll see the link to an article that goes very deep, 33 pages, into the science concerning this issue. It is phenomenal. I warn you, it's a little difficult to understand, so be prepared. But it will discuss this pseudogene issue in more detail than I could possibly do this morning. You can get this article at Answers in Genesis. Just type in their search bar, pseudogenes, and you'll find it. Anyway, pseudogenes are supposed sequences of non-coding, presumably useless DNA which has been inherited by modern organisms from a presumed common ancestor. I hope I'm not losing you. They are assumed to be non-coding and non-functional, and that's important, because if they're coding and functional, then they have a purpose. And if they have a purpose, then they could have been designed. So for the evolutionists, it's critically important that these be errors, genetic errors, if you will. This is similar to the recent findings showing that supposed non-coding junk DNA is actually functional. Now, when we look at something and say, oh, there, there's no way that that is functional, that's assuming a lot. There's a lot we don't know. And I think it's safer to have an open mind until we really know what the evidence says. But the evolutionist goes all in and says pseudogenes are non-functional and non-coding. It's wrong to assume that. This is the same issue which has caused evolutionists' dismay with so-called vestigial structures. Evolutionists have long claimed certain structures are vestigial remnants of evolution, yet useless in modern organisms. Their faulty thinking is being disproved by the science. An example is the appendix, and there are functions now being attributed to it. It's wrong to assume our lack of knowledge about certain structures is evidence of our presuppositions in separate areas, and that's what the evolutionists are doing in this field. This is a typical appeal to ignorance. Pseudogenes include supposed shared sequences of viral DNA from endogenous retroviruses 
and they also include supposed shared sequences of past mutations and genetic errors. And the thinking goes kind of like this: if you were to look at two passages that seemed similar in a book, you could say maybe there's plagiarism going on here. But you could also conclude that there's a good chance that different writers chose similar words to express similar thoughts. However, if you were to see an error in their writing, for example, a misspelling, and it was misspelled in the same place and misspelled the same way in both texts, that error would probably convincingly lead you to believe that the text was plagiarized. That's why. When they look at these pseudogenes, assuming their errors, they match them up, and they can say, "Oh, here we have copies that must have come from a shared common ancestor." That's why this could help them in the case for common descent. Remember, the other evidence is lacking, so they need this. If the pseudogene concept were valid, it would seem to lend support to their theory. It still wouldn't prove that theory, as the lack of geological evidence would contradict it. Even if proven, the pseudogene concept could have some as of yet unknown explanation, and it seems a lot like begging the question, arriving at a conclusion based on a presupposition. That being stated, it seems like there is good reason to reject the pseudogene argument for some of the following reasons. The pseudogene defense of common descent is a classic example of overpromising and underdelivering. This is not the home run that they promise. There are good answers for this, and their argument is based on a lot of presuppositions. First of all, the evolutionists assume that these non-coding sequences are junk or vestigial or useless DNA. There is good evidence that such non-coding DNA is not junk at all. Scientists are finding that so-called junk DNA is really functional, and it's likely that they will soon find the same with pseudogenes. It's wrong to assume otherwise in the absence of information. It is likely that the same will be found for pseudogenes. If pseudogenes are functional, and there is good reason to believe that they are, the theory breaks down. It's no longer an error, but instead, it's an actual functioning part of the designed organism. They should no longer be assumed to be shared errors. Evolutionists are here basing their strongest evidence for common descent on a lack of knowledge about the subject, and this seems to be again an argument from ignorance. Orthologs are the gene sequences supposedly shared between organisms that are presumed related. Determining such sequences is difficult, arbitrary, and subjective. Most sequences are non-orthologous. Similarly, matching up the supposed orthologs. Can often include mistaken orthologs, mismatches, things that look similar but really aren't matches. Gene sequences may seem similar, but that doesn't mean they're correlated. Again, this concept presupposes evolution. It also fails to account for why natural selection would preserve non-coding pseudogenes in the first place. The pseudogene defense of common descent is probably better understood as pseudoscience. It's a lot of assumptions. A lot of presuppositions and a lot that we just don't know yet, being lumped into one package home run answer for an issue that they have not been able to answer since Darwin's time. I think they're grasping at straws, and time will continue to tell that this cannot be the case. Again, even if it could be the case, it would do nothing to destroy the Christian worldview. Is something that they need, not something. That we need. 
It is illustrative of the ploys of those who approach science attempting to support a presupposition. If this were evidence of common descent, we'd see confirmation of it in the fossil record, which we just mentioned is lacking. So I think the big picture is important here. If this were the evidence, they say it is, we'd see it in the fossil record, which we don't, which makes the interpretation I just offered, that this is actual functioning DNA, more plausible than what they say. This doesn't get the evolutionist out of their fossil problem, and the fossil issue seems to negate their pseudogene theory. Again, you can get more of this by going to godsolutionshow.com, clicking on my notes, and looking for the links that describe this in detail. So now what? Even if evolution were true, it wouldn't disprove God. And in fact, like I said before, there are theistic evolutionists like Francis Collins. So this is something that is destructive for the atheist, but less so for the Christian. I disagree with theistic evolution. It's wrong. I think it's bad science and bad theology. But I want to affirm that this issue isn't one that the Christian faith rises or falls with. It is, however, one that atheism and naturalism rise and fall with. And I think, considering the evidence, they fall with it. Again, Darwin said it best. Why, then, is not every geological formation and every stratum full of such intermediate links? Geology assuredly does not reveal any such finely graduated organic chain, and this perhaps is the most obvious and serious objection which can be urged against the theory. The lack of strong transitionary evidence is absolutely destructive for naturalism and corroborates the theistic perspective of the universe. That being stated, their disproval, quote-unquote, of God falls apart. And you and I can be confident that what we already know in our heart of hearts, that God exists, is true and confirmed by the evidence. And not only is God true, but he's personal. He desires to know you in an intimate and personal way. In fact, the Bible says that he loves you personally and individually. He loves you so much individually that he sent his son to live a perfect life on this earth and to take all your sin on himself because you and I are sinful, and sin always separates relationships. But God himself took that sin upon himself at the cross, literally nailing it to the cross, so that anyone who would put their trust in him could receive that free gift of salvation and an eternity with him in heaven and an abundant life of meaning, purpose, and significance here on this planet as well. That's what he offers you. The God of the universe desires to be your friend. He desires to be your Savior, and He desires to be your Lord. He desires to lead you and guide you in a life of meaning and purpose that will be far more satisfying than anything that you could ever come up with on your own and that will lead to an eternal life with Him in heaven. That's good news. If you've never taken that step of beginning a relationship with Christ, I would ask you this morning to say, Jesus, I believe you are who you say you are. And I trust that you're able to do what you promise you'll do. I put my faith in you this morning. I trust you to come into my life, to forgive my sins, and to make me the kind of person that you want me to be. He says the moment you do that, taking that step to put your trust in him, he will adopt you into his family, guaranteeing you an eternity with him in heaven and in a life of abundance, meaning, and significance here on this planet. I hope you'll take that step 
even right now. I'd also like to invite you to First Baptist this morning. First Baptist is a great place to grow in your faith. You could join them on the southeast corner of East 3rd Avenue and 11th Street. Again, that's the southeast corner of East 3rd Avenue and 11th Street, and they'll be meeting there at 1045. I hope you'll stop by and give them a shot. If you do, tell Jeff and the rest of the gang that we say hi. Get all of our previous shows at GodSolutionShow.com, and please let us know what you think. I really appreciate your comments and questions. Remember, like I always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. And that's my hope, that as you investigate the evidence, you'll find that he is true, and that you can trust him, and that all the theories that the atheists and humanists would try and throw at you to get you to disbelieve fall apart. And at the end of the day, Jesus is left standing, offering you more than anyone ever has, and backing that up with the evidence so that you could take a step of faith based on the evidence, not a leap of ignorance. Thank you so much for listening to The God Solution today. I hope you'll tune in again next week. Have a great afternoon. God's greater, God's stronger, God's